Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for Chuck and the elders providing me with this opportunity. Um, it's uh, such a blessing, and uh, Dana and I love this church. Um, I've actually attended here since November 2013, and we got married in June 2014. Dana moved down here, and then I deployed to Turkey for a year, 2014-2015. So if you haven't seen me around lately, it's because I was uh, not around, but we love CTK. And uh, I just really appreciate this opportunity. Um, the fact that I can stand up here today I'm a, as a sinner and can stand in front of you and talk about God's word is just proof of the power of the gospel. Uh, Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection are very real and very powerful, and his kingdom is real and powerful, and I'm living proof of that, that the gospel can change your heart. I'm the farthest thing from a perfect person, and that's... that's Jesus' work on the cross and that I'm up here today. So we're going to start in Psalm 4, and there's a printout uh, in your bulletin that, that has all of Psalm 4 on it, verses 1 through 8. So I'll go ahead and start reading from there. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they're grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. John McEnroe was a, is, he's a former professional tennis player who won uh, six Grand Slam championships and was ranked number one in the world for four straight years in the 1980s. But he's probably most famous for his iconic outbursts that you might have seen because they are replayed constantly. After what he thought was a bad call, McEnroe would slam his racket down, break the racket, run up to the line judge and scream, you cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. And the question is, why did McEnroe respond with such vitriol when the line judge's calls went against his way? And an easy answer is to say he had a short fuse. John McEnroe had a tendency towards anger. And that's true, but I would argue it was more than that. Because as a professional tennis player, his life was invested in winning points, games, sets, and matches. And his world consisted of tennis. There was white lines that marked his boundaries. It was a green net. He had an opponent. And then he had a line judge. And his philosophy, he was number one player in the world. He could lose one of two ways. Either he would mess up, make mistakes, and beat himself. Or the line judge would make bad calls, and he would throw the match to his less deserving, less talented opponent. So because of his life was so in invested in tennis, whenever uh, the referee would make mistakes or make a bad call or didn't see eye to eye with John McEnroe, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just a bad call because injustice was being done in his world. And believe it or not, we have a tendency to be just like John McEnroe because if you don't struggle with anger, you're not going to identify with the verbal nature of his outbursts, but like him nonetheless, we all are, uh, because when we perceive injustice happening to us, whether that's financially 
or socially or spiritually, we have a tendency to blame the person and ask God why it's happening to us at all. And the perceived injustices may vary. It could be a celebrity that we see on TV who is living life of sin and sadness but continues to have riches and fame while we live pious lives and struggle to obtain basic luxury. We may see someone at work. Uh, We work harder than, get rewarded over us because they're more socially in tune with our boss. Uh, There may be someone you went to school with, high school or college, who you're pretty sure you're smarter than, but covet their outrageous success. It's anything beyond you could possibly imagine. And finally, we see people day in and day out poking us in the eye or poking God in the eye, and we turn to God and say, you cannot be serious, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, and I think that's what David is saying in Psalm 4. In verse 2, David says, How long will honor be turned into shame? He's seeing a perversion of his reputation. He's built himself up as a warrior and a king, and he's, he's got to be proud of the fact that he's actually a man after God's own heart. And we build ourselves up too, but not necessarily in a bad way. Uh, Our reputations are important to us, and there's nothing wrong with wanting people to think you're a good person or an honest person. He continues, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The people around David aren't just believing, they're loving vain words and seeking lies. And they don't want to know the true God. They don't want to know the truth about David, and they're haters. And David David thinks they're ruining his life. In verse 6, he says, Who will show us some good? David's life is so bad that he's uncertain any good can come the rest of his life. And the desperation in his voice is troubling because he's really asking God, why do you let these people trample over me or trample over you? And why are they having so much success? Because they're so against everything you teach us in your word. And so when we witness injustices in our own lives, we also can get very down. And we let it bother us beyond any normal capacity because we think we're getting a raw deal. And we're tempted to shoulder the problem and fix it for ourselves once and for all. And considering this, Psalm 4 is there to teach us about how to deal with people who seem to spit in God's eye, yet also seem to be having a lot of success, and it also gives us a broader foundation for dealing with disappointing circumstances in general. So Psalm 4 is specifically there to uh, teach us three things, and these are my three points. One is we reflect on our own shortcomings. Number two is we pick up our cross daily. And number three, we realize that true joy and peace find us, not the other way around. So number one, we reflect on our own shortcomings. Number two, we pick up our cross daily. And number three, we realize that true joy and peace find us, not the other way around. So how do we reflect on our own shortcomings? We know that David was an incredibly powerful warrior. And because of his warrior abilities, he was very capable of committing justice through violence but he doesn't put on his armor and go out and slay everyone who is poking God in the eye. He says it's okay to be angry, but to be angry and do not sin, to sit silently on our beds. He's not controlled by his feelings or his emotions. Instead, he encourages personal reflection. And this reflection is necessary because me and you are not put on this earth to enact justice for other people's sins, especially those outside the flock, which are people David's referring to. Only God is just. Of course, we're going to get angry. And we're going to feel strong emotions because injustice should make us angry. 
But when we feel like God is letting people off the hook, we are acting as our own God. And we are wanting God's capabilities, his power, without the perfect love with which he uses to rule the world. And since we're very incapable of perfection, we are very capable of committing the injustices that make us angry in the first place. When we want to enact justice, when we want to solve the world's problems, we must understand that if not by God's grace, we'd be committing the injustice rather than being offended by it. And imagine a mirror and a window standing right next to each other. David is reminding us to look in the mirror at our own hearts, not the outside window where we judge the actions of lives of others. Personal reflection is supposed to put us in a uh, reflective mode. Being silent on our beds puts us in a reflective mode. But why is David urging us to look in the mirror and not the outside window? He knows the traps of that window. The window shows us others' flaws. It shows us suspects in others' eyes where we start to judge, we start to covet, start to get angry. And the window leads us to judge people unfairly. And it encourages us to commit our own hypocritical injustice. Looking out the window can draw us to sin. Because David knows that when he didn't sit silently on his bed, and he looked out his window and outside, he's going to see Bathsheba. When we look in the mirror, we start to realize that without God's grace, we would be committing the injustice. Because it tells us, the mirror tells us the truth about ourselves, that if we could do anything and we could get away with anything, we would. And when I look in my uh, mirror, I see the worst person I know, apart from God's grace. And it's terrifying and frightening. In the first, the, in the first century, the Pharisees were only obsessed with the outside window. Uh, they were attempting to bring justice to their world, and they weren't really worshiping God. They were worshiping their own piety, and they used it as a sword against other people. Because they were following the very letter of the law, it was easy to judge people who were blatantly breaking God's law. But Jesus sees an irony in this thinking. If we don't understand our own capacity for sin, if we love ourselves too much, we're following a cultural narrative that tells us we deserve something more than others. We become gods to ourselves, and the people around us are going to become disloyal, misbehaving subjects. That's a consequence of looking through the window and disregarding personal reflection. But because of God's grace, evil does not triumph in us, and more importantly, evil is not going to triumph in our world because there's a counter-narrative in our culture that describes Jesus, a man who is God on earth, who lived not for himself but for us. And that story takes us to a cross, and there Jesus, the only true good person, stood in our place and received the punishment for our sin. So number two, this is my second point, we pick up our cross daily. David tells us in verse 5 to offer the right sacrifices, but what does it mean? What does he mean by that? And we can look for clues in some of David's other psalms. In Psalm 51, his famous confession for his affair with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of Uriah, David's right sacrifice consisted of a burnt offering. He understands that his life is worthy not by David committing justice, not by doing anything on his own, but by God's grace. He understands his actions had to be atoned for. His sins could not be unchecked. A sacrifice was necessary. And it's clear from all of David's psalms that he anticipates the Son of God, the establishment of God's kingdom in this world. 
But Jesus himself, that ultimate sacrifice, sheds more light on what the word sacrifice means to us at all. Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes Hosea 6.6 and explains to the Pharisees that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This mercy is based not on any merit or justice we can do on our own, but on God's steadfast love for us. This steadfast love is ultimately going to be shown in him going to the cross, serving as our ultimate sacrifice, and establishing God's kingdom on earth. And this kingdom is laid out in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that's based on something that gets right to the heart of Psalm 4. Wisdom in this world is going to be seen by foolishness from God, and God's wisdom is going to be seen as foolishness in this world. Success here is not success at all, because the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, The older serves the younger, the meek inherit the earth. And finally, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all this is based in God's steadfast love, not in any perceived qualities or luxuries we desire that we think will make this life bearable. So what is our response to this? We need to daily think about what it means to offer the right sacrifices to the Lord. Paul urges us in Romans to by these sacrifices, by these mercies of God, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus similarly tells us simply to pick up our cross and follow him. We go where he goes, we do what he says, and we tell others about the gracious work he's done for us. And picking up your cross is going to feel like the most unnatural reaction to injustice because it's not going to fix our feelings or emotions we're still going to feel like people are getting off the hook. And our cultural narrative tells us this world is hard because people believe this world's hard, but you deserve luxury and you deserve quality in your life. And so we're constantly going to be trying to attain success and comfort. And when that doesn't happen to us and happens to someone we deem less worthy, we're still going to go to our line judge and scream, you cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. But we have to know that as Chuck often reminds us that Repentance and faith and obedience aren't based on feelings or emotions. And thank the Lord that Jesus wasn't controlled by his feelings or his emotions. He didn't smite us despite all the terrible things we did to him. He loved us incredibly despite feeling hurt. And we must love others, even those poking us in the eye, poking God in the eye, despite these feelings and emotions we're going to have towards them. We are called to go back to the hill Calvary every day and pick up our own cross because Jesus tells us that the people who are living their lives, the people David is upset with, who seem to be having lots of success, they're going to realize at the end that they've lived their whole lives just to lose them. And us, we live in a subversive, sacrificial, beautiful new kingdom he established where we realize at the end that we've been given God's ultimate gift, his gracious sacrifice for us. So in our desire for fame, or power, or money, or a perfect family, or perfect friendships, we get surprised. We realize, and this is the final point, we realize that true joy and peace find us, not the other way around. Christ's ultimate sacrifice brings us the answer to David's questions, that despite deep frustration with this world, we can absolutely expect God's true joy and peace. And David knows this, doesn't he? He he says, listen to the second part of verse 1 at the beginning. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. 
And again in verse 8 at the end, he says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have peace, which Vine defines as a harmonious relationship with God. In a world full of trouble, we are loved and sustained by a promise that the world will not always be full of trouble. God's kingdom is being established before our very eyes, and though it's difficult, we are graciously given a part to play. A quick word on God's peace. I was recently in a very hard place, as Christians often find ourselves, and I didn't understand the concept of God's peace. I said, what is God's peace? And I said it like I was searching for a thing, something like that I could attain in some meditative state or grasp out of an airwave. But that's not what God's peace is. It's an assurance, not a feeling. And God isn't telling us that life will be easy, but he says he's in control of the world right now, and there's a new world to come. And thank the Lord that, unlike me, Jesus doesn't spend his time on earth worrying about all the injustices being done to him because he could, find, he could look at my life or your lives and find reasons to feel injustice from his father. He could find tons of reasons to feel slighted by God. But he had no home. He had no clothes just clothes on his back, but material things meant nothing to Jesus. Power and beauty and wealth on this earth were nothing to him because he came as a servant. Here's what uh, pastor and author Paul David Tripp says about Psalm 4. Now, I love this quote. He says, Don't read Psalm 4 and say, This is what I should be doing, but I am not. Say, This is what God is doing in me too. These things are possible for me because David's Redeemer is my Redeemer. The God who ruled David's heart and gave him peace in a time of torment is in my heart as well. Psalm 4 does not picture a man's mechanical obedience to a set of biblical principles because if all we needed was information about how to do the right thing, Jesus never would have needed to come. What, he actually, what we actually see in this psalm is God's grace at work in a man's heart, empowering him to do things that would be impossible on his own. Yes, David is despondent, and we are going to be too. Sometimes we'll exclaim, you cannot be serious, you've got to be kidding me. But even our despondence, we know the answer, like David does. David ends the psalm with a peaceful night's sleep. He confirms that he has more joy in his heart than his enemies have grain and wine. Why is he saying this? Does God solve all the injustices, all the problems happening to David by the time he hand scrolls from verse 1 to verse 8? No, but David, through this psalm, regains his sense of perspective on what joy is and what joy is not. Our longings are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord and nothing else. We're not going to feel that way on a minute-to-minute basis or a day-to-day basis or a year-to-year basis. We're not going to feel happy all the time. We're not going to feel joyful all the time. We're not going to feel secure all the time. We're not going to feel like we have all the money we need all the time. Because if those feelings were always present, they probably wouldn't be good for us anyways. If life were always easy, we would have no need for a Savior. And those problems that we have don't give us a glimpse of who we truly are and who Christ truly is. James 1 echoes Psalm 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we truly look at others, we're probably not envying something very enviable. Because a big house, or a nice car, or beautiful relationships, or a beautiful big family, none of those things are bad in of themselves, but they're not going to keep us alive. They're not going to satisfy us. They're not going to satisfy us, and they're definitely not going to give us mercy. They may make life easier, not necessarily make life better. We desire ultimate things as human beings, and we're going to be disappointed with anything sub-ultimate. And looking inside at our own reputations and wounded egos, that's going to disappoint us too. We're not truly searching for wealth or friendship or a perfect family or a nice car or a big house or the next thing we desire. The next thing we compare our lives and other, other people's lives, what we compare them to. We're searching for God. But the God we're searching for found us first. The other day I was listening to a national radio interview and the subject was foreign policy. There was a woman on there, foreign policy expert, top of her field. Her husband is an accomplished author. And you could tell that the host knew her personally. Towards the end of the interview, he asked a woman, he said, I know you and your husband were both diagnosed with terrible sickness in the same year. How are you handling it? And the woman replied, that's true. You know, I have beginning stage breast cancer. But my doctors are optimistic and think I will soon heal. But within days of finding out I had cancer, my husband was diagnosed with ALS. And he's holding on for dear life. So I ask all the listeners out there to please cross their fingers for him. And I, I gasped in my car when I was listening to that. I couldn't believe what she had just said because it was sad and shocking that I would cross my fingers in blind luck for her husband. The success we crave in this world is only as good as a short life on earth. And thank the Lord that we rely on Christ's work on the cross, not in cross fingers. His work there on the cross lasts forever. He came into this earth to heal our broken hearts and to reverse the tumultuous conditions we set for ourselves. He died for our injustice that we did to him and every sinful desire we've ever had to make ourselves happy, to make ourselves successful. And he is king now. He rose from the grave to be merciful and sovereign. And he graciously begs us into his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father, we turn to you because you are the only place we can go. Thank you for your grace, which frees us from the prison of obtaining anything subultimate. Allow us to reflect on your mercy instead of other successes. Allow us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices instead of becoming bitter. And allow us to share your beautiful gospel that saves us from sin and saves us from ourselves. Amen.